I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to the Audible Original American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts. American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. With every new season comes an air of optimism. Everyone starts anew. You spent the entire offseason, the better part of half a year, readying yourself for this moment. When your team leaves the locker room and heads down that tunnel, your blood pumps harder than it ever has before. You're almost nauseous from the excitement. The noise inside your head is now drowned out by the deafening cheers of tens of thousands of fans gathered to watch you. They want blood, yours or your opponent's. Never was that intensity more present than opening day 1920, the inaugural season of the American Professional Football Association. It wasn't just a new season, it was a new league. The first year in which everything would count where everything would really matter. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is American Football Chapter 4, The Human Torpedo. Welcome to the historic inaugural season of the American Professional Football Association, where the Akron Pros are set to face off against the Columbus Panhandle. On the Panhandle sideline is longtime manager Joe Carr, who just snuck into the league at the 11th hour. He's seen his team through thick and thin, and times are definitely thin at the moment. It's got to be especially galling for him to look across the field and see none other than Al Nesser suited up to play for the Akron Pros. Beside Nesser are new Akron owners Art Ranney and Frank Nee. They, along with all 14 teams in this new league, have high hopes for the upcoming season. Akron lines up for its first play from scrimmage. In the backfield is former college star Fritz Pollard, a man who attended Dartmouth, Harvard, and Brown. How's that happen? The ball is snatched. It's a handoff to Pollard, who follows a block from Nesser, but Pollard stopped at the... No! What a move! He just picked that linebacker out of his socks. And another before finally being brought down at the 42. Wow, it's a fabulous 25-yard run to get things underway here. My goodness, how did he escape that? Fritz Pollard was not the prototypical running back of his day. Sure, he was strong, athletic, and fast, but his small size made heavy hitters like the Nesser brothers lick their chops. Pollard's response? Always make them miss. His jitterbug stop-start style of play was unlike anything the game had ever seen. Of course, Fritz had spent his life running around barriers. Former safety Malcolm Jenkins. Well, there's an old African saying that until the lion learns how to write, the story of the hunt is always told by the hunter. And I think that's really what we look at when it comes to history. Why don't we know this information? 
is because when these people were dominating their sports, when they were making this history, all of the people who were in charge and had ownership in it were white. <laughs> and it's a different time. Born Frederick Douglass Pollard in Chicago's far north neighborhood of Rogers Park on January 27, 1894, Pollard's familiar birth name was bestowed after his parents saw the famous former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass give a celebrated speech at the Chicago World's Fair. But growing up on the city's north side, as one of the only African Americans in a community of immigrants, the locals had other ideas. Here's Dr. Peter Mackey, historian at Brown University. The name Friska tagged on him by some German neighbors, and it stuck. So they, the parents called him Fred, but everybody else called him Fritz, and therefore Fritz it was going to be. Fritz was the seventh of eight children born to John William and Catherine Hughes Pollard. With a pioneer spirit his children would soon inherit, John William enlisted in one of the first black regiments to fight in the Civil War for the Union Army out of Kansas. Catherine was smart, educated, fearless, and aggressive, traits that would define Fritz as well. But with racial tensions surging after the war, John William and Catherine relocated their family to Chicago. Discipline at home was strict, fueling a fierce drive to succeed in sports, school, and business. Here's Damian Thomas, sports curator for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Fritz Pollard comes of age during an era where African Americans are talking about the talented tent, where we get certain African Americans are given an opportunity to show what African Americans can do, what they can accomplish. And then their responsibility is to reach back and uplift other African-Americans to reach the highest levels of society. With accomplished older siblings, Fritz had giant shoes to fill. Luther, Leslie, and Hughes were all star athletes standing at least six feet tall and weighing 200 pounds. But young Fritz had a problem. He was really a pipsqueak. As a sophomore at Lane Tech High School in 1909, he stood just 4 feet 11 inches tall and weighed only 89 pounds. Despite Fritz's size, he grew up playing hard with his brothers, learning to use his weakness as an advantage. In addition to blazing speed, he had a decisive shiftiness. Think Barry Sanders, but smaller. Here's Barry to tell us himself. You know, I wasn't a Jim Brown, Earl Campbell type runner. Uh, if you saw me run someone over, that was definitely an accident. Uh, <laughs> I was a guy who um, was good in the open field. I mean, I could I could break tackles. I took such great pride in being a running back um, and, and everything that came with that. So yeah, I, I, I definitely had something to prove. No, no question about it. I'm trying to prove I belong here with these guys, you know? Pollard was a revelation on the field where he and his brother led Lane Tech to a city championship over their rival, Crane Tech. There, he faced off against another standout athlete in football track and baseball, a young man named George Hallis. Yes, NFL Hall of Fame's George Hallis. But being short was only one of Fritz's challenges. When he arrived at the train station one morning to travel with his team to a downstate game, he learned the train had already left. Here's Peter Mackey. The train was gone, the team was gone, so he took the next train, he went several miles beyond and had to walk back. But finally, he learned that the other team didn't want to play a team with a black player. And somehow his coach and teammates 
went along with that. And, and that's a betrayal that just really, really cuts. He had to eat a lot of feelings. There's no question about it. After a brilliant three-letter high school career, it was time for Fritz to pick a college. In 1912, Fritz arrived at Northwestern University and headed straight for the locker room. He found a uniform and practiced with the freshman team for two weeks. Once classes got underway, he thought, hey, maybe I should register here. That's right, Pollard had never applied. He just assumed when they saw him play, they'd want him. But the dean didn't share Pollard's view of things. Despite the setback, Pollard walked uninvited and unenrolled into the locker rooms and dean's offices of multiple distinguished universities. Dartmouth, Harvard, and Bates, usually finding a degree of success. He'd stay for a stint, but it was never the right fit. In the end, Fritz talked his way into Brown University, about which he'd heard great things from his mother. Here's Damian Thomas again. At the time, college was only for the elite. And so for an African-American to get to a place like Brown University, he's going to be one of the few Black students on campus. Here's Hall of Fame wide receiver Chris Carter. Brilliant man. Could have done anything um, that he wanted to do, um, but had a passion, you know, for the people and for football. And that's the reason why we have awards um, named after him, Fritz Prowler um, Award, um, which I did win when I was in Minnesota, to teach about, you know, the valuable history um, that we do have and the impact that African-Americans have made on the game um, from the beginning of the game until the current day. Fritz took a room off campus. And, as quickly as he'd fallen in love with the school, he fell in love with the landlord's daughter. Her name was Ada Lang. She was intelligent, confident, and born into a trailblazing family of her own, with a grandfather who was one of the first black medical doctors in the United States. They were married in six months and had a son, Fritz Pollard Jr., a year later. Ada appreciated his industriousness and self-reliance. But most of all, she appreciated his drive to play football at the highest levels. Here is Chicago Bears legend, Mike Singletary. I always felt, you know, that, that chip on my shoulder for not being big enough, not being tall enough, not being heavy enough. But you know what? One thing that Mike gonna do, he's gonna work. And, and if you can outwork him, you, you deserve it. But Mike gonna be ready. You know, while you're talking about how, how big he's not, and everything that he's not, Mike gonna be proven that he is by the work ethic. And that was always the thing, and I got that from my mother and my father. You know, let other people do the talk, but son, you do the work. Finally, in 1915, after much hustle and hard work, Fritz was fully eligible to play for Brown. The problem was Brown wasn't fully ready to play him, or even let him practice. Here's Peter Mackey again. He got a very, a very nasty early reception, totally shunned by his teammates. When he goes into the shower room, what happens? All of the guys in the shower room walk out. When he gets to go back on the trolley back to campus, they all jump off. Damian Thomas. Even when African-Americans were allowed to compete on their teams, they weren't necessarily accepted. Players were often targeted for injury, for taunts, sometimes even by their own teammates. They made Fritz's life miserable, but nothing was worse to Fritz than not being able to play. 
you can lose your mind trying to figure out what part of it is you and what part of it is the system. So the most important thing to do is do the best you can while you can and let the chips fall where they may. Finally, he got his first real shot to prove himself at a practice, one not so affectionately known as Bloody Wednesday. Here's how Peter Mackey describes it. The first team would be challenged by those who were trying to take their positions away. There was an end on the varsity named John Butler, southerner from Atlanta. So he says to the quarterback, send that little so-and-so, you know, the N-word, around my end. So the quarterback obliges, hands Pollard ball, Pollard goes around, makes a deep, goes one way. Butler is grasping for air, comes up and he's furious. Send him around here again. Same story. Third time, the same thing happens. Butner finally goes to Coach Robbins and he said, I think we'd better let him join the team. There's no feeling like knowing that when you step on that field that you have done everything you can possibly do to be ready. And if, if it's not enough, then so be it. But you know that you put in the time. You know that you earn the right to be here. Two days later, Fritz reported to practice and found out he was not included on that week's active roster. He walked behind a row of lockers, sat down and cried. It was the first time he seriously considered giving up on his dream. He told Ada they should pack up and go live with his family in Chicago. But Ada would hear none of it. They lean on you more than you would expect them to because they don't want to complain to teammates or coaches. That's Kelly Stafford, wife of L.A. Rams starting quarterback Matthew Stafford. You become their number one sounding board. And just to be as upfront as you can, but also knowing that they're looking for encouragement and support. Ada was right to believe. Fritz's time was coming, and much sooner than he thought. Ask any ball carrier, what's the one and only golden rule? Don't drop the ball. Just trying to hold on to the ball. We don't want you to fumble. We don't want you to fumble. fumble. Don't do that. In Brown's game against Amherst, the Browns' ball carriers couldn't grasp this simple rule any more than the pigskin. Brown's coach was pulling his hair out. He was finally faced with a choice he never wanted to make. Either put Pollard in or go completely bald. Fritz finally entered the game, held onto the ball, and ran back a kickoff for 60 yards that left the crowd breathless. Once Pollard got on the field, he never left, playing both offense and defense, leading the team to a coveted berth in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day. It would be the first time an African-American played on that hallowed field in Pasadena, California. He followed up 1915 with a near-perfect season in 1916, including back-to-back wins over aided rivals and perennial powerhouses, Harvard and Yale. But no matter how many accolades and triumphs he racked up, there was no shortage of bigots looking to tear him down. Here is Pollard himself from a 1976 NFL Films interview. My father had taught all of us not to pay any attention to anything like that. When he got in the field, say, little blacks, so-and-so, 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 I'd look at him and grin. They didn't get mad and want to fight him. Just look, look at him and get grinned and the next minute run 80 yards for a touchdown. During the Yale game, 
Fans taunted Pollard by singing Bye Bye Blackbird. On the outside, Fritz remained upbeat and focused on the task at hand. However, on the inside, the constant abuse made him heartsick and wore heavy on his soul. At the end of his life, Pollard was in his late 80s. Mr. Pollard, they sang songs about you, didn't they? And Fritz says, yes. Oh, yeah, they got that song. Bye-bye, bye, blackbird. And when I saw that, I said, the pain is still there. All of that stuff that he kept, that he repressed and kept inside himself, there, there it was. At year's end, Pollard was named to Walter Camp's All-America team, the first black running back to make the list. By 1917, he was a local celebrity. But that, too, would come with a price. Here's former All-Pro quarterback Michael Vick. Playing professional sports, it, it brings you status, and, and it brings a fan base, and, and it brings expectations. And so now you're under the microscope, the microscope with a lot of expectations, and you really have the honor to live up to it. You know, um, that's what being a role model is all about. I didn't understand what that word really meant, what that term really meant. And I uh, took it for granted, but at least, you know, I can help the next generation of young men and women understand that, you know, when you get into a prominent position, don't take it lightly. And uh, everything that you work for, never jeopardize it. One night, he might be invited to a gala by Brown alumni John D. Rockefeller to glad-hand rich white folk. While on another, the NAACP might call on Pollard to speak at an event to his fellow travelers in the black community all of which took him away from his family, his training, and his academics. It was very rare for African-Americans to go to elite Northeastern and Midwestern schools. And so for him to have that opportunity held tremendous symbolic significance and importance, that meant that he had to figure out how to conform, how to engage, how to be accepted at least as much as was possible. Yet at the same time, because of the constraints in society, he also had to be very comfortable being in African-American environments. By 1918, the Great War was raging and Americans were called on to serve, the highest percentage of which were college students. Schools struggled to put teams on the field and maintain full schedules. But even if Brown could still play, Pollard could not. He faced academic ineligibility. At a loss of what to do next in his life, Fritz Pollard did what so many other young men did at a time of war. He joined the Army. Soon thereafter, that's when he started uh, his military service, when he went down to Camp Meade. Um, so that ended his Brown athletic career. A world away and one year on, Frank Need stared out the window of his Akron, Ohio cigar store, lost in thought. It was 1919 and World War I was finally over. He and his partner, Art Ranny, had recently purchased the Akron Indians. Need and Ranny's plan was to convert success on the field into dollars for Need's cigar store. Chris Willis of NFL Films... They thought of it as, hey, this sport has a future, I want to be involved in it, and we can also make some money and be a good business. The only problem, the Indians' glory days with Peggy Parrott were long gone, and the team was a mess. But Need was tired of losing, especially to Maslin. 
This is Les Snead, general manager of the Los Angeles Rams. Winning's very important. No matter where you play, what field you're on, there's a scoreboard, and it's 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 keeping the math. You get to the NFL, guess what? You're selecting you're selecting players that can help NFL teams execute their schemes and win football games. Here's former NFL quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. Pittsburgh's not a big market, but yet it's one of the most popular teams in the world and has fans everywhere. And a lot of it has to do with winning. You could be a small market team if you're winning you're going to grow your market. If you can win, you, you kind of create your own market size. Facing a rematch in a week, Frank wanted a ringer, but he didn't have much to spend. That's when he got an idea, both radical and a bit desperate. Frank floated his idea to Indians head coach, Ralph Fat Waldsmith. Their team was already in the cellar. What did they have to lose? After a train to Philly and a long cab ride, Fat arrived at Lincoln University, an HBCU, short for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Waldsmith stood out like a sore white thumb. He asked to see the head football coach and was ushered into an office. There sat Fritz Pollard. Fat introduced himself and asked Fritz how he ended up at Lincoln after his star run at Brown. Pollard told it to him straight. He planned to go fight for the Army. Only when he enlisted, they had other plans. The Army kept him stateside to boost morale and get troops physically fit. Pollard was eventually sent here to Lincoln, one of the few colleges to train black students. When the war ended, Pollard stayed on to become the athletic director and football coach. This is former quarterback Michael Vick. It hurt, especially when I went through what I went through. It it, it was a tough situation, but I was fairly young, too. I was only 28 years old, and I had a lot of football to play, at least another seven, eight years. And so, you know, when you're sitting there watching and you're seeing guys play, I mean, I, you know, kind of, you know, started feeling sorry for myself, and I, I couldn't, the love for the game started to fade away because now I'm not the focal point. I'm not the guy. Pollard explained he now had a wife and two children to feed, and his coaching job hardly paid their bills. Fat made his pitch. The Akron Indians wanted Pollard to suit up for them against the Massillon Tigers that Sunday. He handed Pollard a $200 check. Fritz looked at the check and wondered if he was dreaming. And they made me a pretty good offer, and I needed the money. So I finally went out with Akron and, and began playing pro football. The truth was, Fritz had been willing to give up the game in his head, but never in his heart. Here's NFL Hall of Famer Leroy Butler on what it's like being away from the game. Guys go into depression um, when they retire. And because think about it, every week 80,000 people scream for you. And when you retire, a lot of guys can't deal with that. After coaching his Lincoln Lions college squad to a Saturday victory, Pollard needed two overnight trains to be on time for Sunday's contest. Upon reaching Akron, he was reminded that glory on the field comes at a high price when you're African-American. He tried to hail a cab, but was ignored. Only when Frank Need sent a driver did Fritz get transportation. And when he got to the hotel where he was to check in and dress, he was refused. Apparently, when arrangements were made, the type of guest wasn't specified. Fritz was forced to dress in the office of Frank Need's cigar store. 
Institutional racism was very, very clear. That was the kind of racism that existed everywhere. Malcolm Jenkins. We look at the Muhammad Ali's of Hawaii's, we hold him up so high. Not only was he a great athlete and a champion, but he had to deal with all of these other uh, these other fights, per se, off the, off the, out of the ring. Now, all Pollard had to do was play football. As if he wasn't exhausted, humiliated, and insulted. And play he did, taking his game to the next level. Before 8,500 fans... Pollard ran back punts, made several tackles for a loss, and broke multiple long gains. Maslin would win 13-6, but Pollard was the true victor. He was only the second African-American to play pro ball and was the only one in the league at the time. And he was all anyone could talk about. Peter Mackey. He established himself as, as a gate attraction, which he was partly because he was a curiosity, and partly because he was such a phenomenal player, lightning speed, he got the turnstiles churning, so he got paid more than the average player. So you can imagine how his mostly all-white team felt about that. The hogs in the trenches and so forth probably didn't uh, take very well to that. Fritz felt the old juices flowing, and playing football at the highest level was once again his one and only priority. Malcolm Jenkins. Football to me is life. Like it's the it's the only place where you really feel like there's a level playing field. You got to get 11 guys from different backgrounds to work together as a team to compete against another team, where one player can dominate but can't win a game. Everybody's fate is dependent on one another. It's a metaphor for life as a society, as human beings. If we could ever master this game together to figure out how to win, it's the perfect metaphor. America was launching into a new decade, the Roaring Twenties, full of peace, vigor, and optimism. A new league, the American Professional Football Association, would be launched with it. Wanting a fresh start, and in the spirit of the new league, the Akron Indians were renamed the Pros. The question was, what could they accomplish playing together for a full season? And would the new league led by President Thorpe, Ralph Hay, and the other owners, really be able to tackle the problems that had plagued the game for so long. Personally, Pollard couldn't wait for opening day. This would be his chance to prove himself on a grander scale, and he was chomping at the bit for his first meeting against the legendary Jim Thorpe. Fritz Pollard tells the story about one of the first times the six-foot Thorpe and the 5'8 Pollard bumped into each other at a hotel. And when I went out to play against Jim with Canton, Ohio, and Jim said, hello, little black boy. I said, hello, big black boy. And he looked at me. He was dumbfounded. He didn't expect me to return uh, uh, some uh, epithet like I did. I said, well, we're going to play against each other. We'll find out who's going to be the blackest after this game. Thorpe was football royalty but Pollard wanted his crown. I've heard it, naturally, I'd heard about the great Jim Thorpe and whatnot, but I imagine he had heard about the great Fred Pollard because I had a name at that time, too. The Akron pros roared out of the gate. After surviving the gauntlet of Nessers in his league-opening victory over Joe Carr's panhandles, 
Fritz and his team won their first four games by a combined score of 98 to nothing. Pollard played 60 minutes both ways, spearheading the attack, rushing for touchdowns, leading the team in receptions and punt returns, kicking and providing sound tackling and leadership on defense. When Akron and Canton met for the marquee matchup of the regular season, Pollard versus Thorpe, both teams were undefeated. With Canton having only lost one game in the last two years, Here's former NFL quarterback Ben Roethlisberger to describe that feeling. My rookie year uh, in Pittsburgh, the Patriots were coming in. Super Bowl champs, 21 straight wins, Tom Brady led, and I was a rookie. You know, at that time, it's kind of like, okay, uh, you you feel confident because you got a good team, but I'm still a rookie quarterback, and I'm going against arguably the greatest of all time, Tom Brady. And that team that had never lost in 21 straight games. And to do that in the NFL is almost unheard of. And I'm not, I'll never say that they overlooked us because we had a rookie quarterback. To win that game was almost surreal. To knock them kind of off that pedestal of, of 21 straight was, was pretty special. Before the big day, Jim Thorpe was telling anyone who'd listen that Fritz Pollard would be a no-show because he was too afraid to face him and that Pollard wasn't ready. The real issue was that Jim was a star. The star. And he had been for nearly a decade. Still, the game was catching up with him. He'd been playing three sports year-round for ages. And now, at age 32, all those miles began taking their toll. It was one thing to lose a step, but to lose his mantle at the game's best? Here's broadcaster Kurt Menepe to paint a scene of that day. Good afternoon and welcome to Lakeside Park in Canton, Ohio. The APFA's inaugural season is well underway, and 10,000 fans are on hand to witness two of the game's greatest players duke it out to see if the torch is indeed passed from one football titan to another. From the start, Canton players agreed they were not going to let Fritz beat them. Oh, that looked like a cheap shot against Bobby. He was down when one of the Bulldogs dove into his leg well after the play had stopped. Former tight end Tony Gonzalez knows what it's like to get hit with a cheap shot. And I ran a flat route, and the ball got thrown to the other side of the field. Didn't even get thrown to me. And I remember the defensive player came and hit me like I had caught the ball, and I wasn't ready for it, and blasted. I'm talking garage sale where I'm on the ground. A helmet almost came off. Uh... And that, that's a, obviously it's an extreme cheap shot. And so those really get you, get you upset. It's hard to compose yourself after taking a hit like that. Pollard nevertheless rose to his feet, smiling. Thorpe kicked a field goal, but it bounced off the uprights, leaving Akron ahead 10-0. But the game's most talked about play was yet to come. When Thorpe instructed his punter to go right at Pollard. With the Bulldogs looking to knock him out of the game. It's a high, spinning kick. 30 yards downfield with Kent's defenders closing fast. Pollard under the ball. Feels it cleanly out of the air, but Thorpe and Gunyan are there. The two Bulldogs launch themselves from opposite sides. Whoa! Pollard ducks low. They slam into each other. There's Pollard running away. Finally, to be brought down at midfield. That escape was worthy of Harry Houdini. Once again, Fritz Pollard. And pro football was a little rough back in those days. They, 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 they came after you. If you were supposedly a star, they came after you to kind of put you out of business. And, and uh, being 
as small as I was, no one had any sympathy for me at all. They used to hit me one on top, one below, in order to try to take me out. But my brothers had taught me how to spin out of those kind of things. And then when they would do it, they would say, well, you little black, I'll get you the next time. Fortunately, my brothers, as I said, had taught me what to do, and I never got hurt. At the end of the day, Akron beat Canton 10-0, ending Canton and Thorpe's incredible multi-season win streak. And I talked to him and kidded him after the game because we beat Canton, and the first time Canton had ever lost the game. And I scored all the points. Just as Eisenhower had come to acknowledge the greatness of Jim Thorpe, Thorpe realized it was time for him to do the same. Despite all the pregame trash talk, Thorpe conceded Pollard's immense talent, saying he was the best running back he had ever seen. Pollard had been chasing this moment his whole life. The pros ended their season with a record of eight wins, zero losses, and two ties. Here's Chris Willis again. Akron Pros were the best team in the APFA. They were unbeaten. Their lead player or their best player was Fish Pollard. And if the NFL named it MVP, Fish Pollard would have won it. With no formal process in place to say otherwise, the Akron Pros proclaimed themselves league champions. But that's when a man from Pollard's past reached out with a proposal play an extra game that sounded like a perfect way for both teams to make money. The Decatur Staley's, led by Pollard's former high school rival, George Hallis, were having a remarkable first season in the APFA. But a loss to the Chicago Cardinals dashed the Staley's perfect season. When all the league games were done, Hallis looked at his team's 10-1-2 record, and with no one else to tell him otherwise, declared the Staley's champions of the West. Hallis proposed to Pollard that Akron, champions of the East, play Decatur for the ultimate title. Pollard was skeptical, to say the least. There were, in actuality, no East and West divisions except in Hallis's head. For Pollard, Akron exited the season undefeated, so they were already the APFA champs, fair and square but Hallis had an ace up his sleeve. The game he was proposing would be played in Chicago, Pollard and Hallis's hometown. Here is Mark Staley, the great-grandson of A.E. Staley Sr., who at that time owned the Decatur Staley's. They were playing at Decatur. I think they could fit about a you know, 1,000, 1,500 people. And so the last part of the season, they played their home games in Chicago that year. And they were drawing over 10,000 people at the time. So a big, big difference. The prospect for Pollard of playing and winning a championship game in front of friends and family proved too great to pass up. Fritz agreed, and the game was set for December 12th. The largest crowd of the season showed up to watch a grind fest with Pollard and Hallis's top-tier squads denying each other's offense much ground. Mark Staley, again. It was a grudge match, more or less, and uh, George was doing anything to, to try to win that. The Akron pros, all they had to do is tie because they had not lost a game all season. The teams were evenly matched, too evenly as it were, and the game ended in an unsatisfying 0-0 tie. 
Hellas, you know, declared that, you know, the Decatur Staley's had really won that league because uh, they had the most wins, but they were, they were not undefeated unlike uh, the pros were. Once again, a pro football season ended in messiness and controversy. The team owners were exasperated. Had there been a more organized process in place to determine a champion, House wouldn't have been able to take advantage of the situation. But therein lay the league's big failure of its inaugural season. Despite all the talk of unity, none of the problems the league was created to fix had been addressed. Chris Willis. Uh, They they weren't yet a a league. They weren't uh, yet very polished. The use of ringers was still rampant, and players' salaries were still outpacing gate receipts. That its own president, Jim Thorpe, hadn't even bothered to attend the APFA's year-end meeting to review its performance said it all. Jim Thorpe is a great football player, not a great administrator. It was obvious that we have to be more organized, we have to have a real uh, business leader. The commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell. Everybody wants to play by the same rules and everyone wants to play on a level playing field. And that's something that's incredibly important for the commissioner to make sure that happens. The rules apply to everybody, every team, every player, every coach. And you have to ensure that so that the public has confidence in that. And that's when it happened. Someone stood up to speak. Someone who had come to the league's meeting without any prepared remarks. His team had played abysmally all season. And he knew his days of managing them were winding down. That man was Joe Carr. And despite his small stature... He held the room absolutely wrapped. Leadership often comes from unlikely places and and the places you don't expect it to come from. This is Sam Walker, leadership consultant and author of The Captain Class. You have a star player who is also your top leader. That's a dangerous place to be because you basically have a cult of personality. There are certain people inside a team that are just these touchstones that everyone looks to. Uh, They may not say much, they may not be stars, they may not even be regular starters, but they're people that people look to. And those are the people who are the glue, because they all stick together and work together, and they're the ones who are going to hold you together in bad times. Carr made it clear that once-a-year meetups at Ralph Hayes, Hupmobile, or any of the owners' real businesses to blame each other for the league's dysfunction was a recipe for failure. So was poaching players, encroaching on the college market, and crowning champions willy-nilly. He spoke from his heart about how a family is stronger together and how, if their dream of a league were to be kept alive, someone had to be working day and night to carry it across the finish line. He was, in essence, calling for a new sheriff in town. Roger Goodell. I believe our 32 owners in our clubs care deeply about the future of the league. They do the right thing at the end of the day. I think the obligation on our behalf is to make sure we explain it to them. We, we present why we believe this is a good step and to demonstrate the basis of your recommendation to them. And then you've got to make it successful, right? You couldn't do that if competitively we put teams in a difficult position. So competitors had to be at the forefront. Carr's biggest detractor, Ralph Hay, the new owner of the Canton Bulldogs, the guy who found Carr annoyingly prim and proper, was the first to state what everyone there was thinking. Joe Carr should be anointed APFA's new president. Thorpe was out. Carr had finally thumped his rival. 
Dakar's first order of business was cleaning up the championship mess, pressing all the other owners to take a good hard look at all the stats. Akron had the best record, they had the best wins, so they actually awarded it to Akron. They determined as a group that the Akron pros should be the official champs of the 1920 season, not the Decatur Staley's. Fritz Pollard couldn't have been happier. Just a year ago, he was coaching college ball, coiling in obscurity. Now, he had almost single-handedly led his team to an unbeaten record, besting the great Jim Thorpe along the way in a truly unforgettable season. Frederick Douglass Fritz Pollard, a.k.a. the Human Torpedo, was the first official pro football league champ, African-American or otherwise. In my view, Fritz Pollard was one of the greatest American athletes and uh, greatest Americans in terms of his work for underserved populations and his fight for racial justice that we've ever known. Those are strands that I think shouldn't be forgotten. Chris Carter knows this history. They haven't wanted to talk about his legacy and his impact on the game. Malcolm Jenkins, again. When Colin takes a knee, it creates this surge of attention. And now all of a sudden we have the microphones, we have the cameras. And it's at that moment that I saw the potential and that, oh, it's, this is not just a drill. <laughs> this is the real thing. We have a true opportunity to make our voices heard, to bring these uh, issues from our environments onto the table and do it in a way that does not affect the game. He had finally achieved what he'd sacrificed so much to obtain. He had honored the spirit of his parents' wishes, but ultimately... He'd followed his own heart. Things were looking up, and anyone who loved pro football was happy he had arrived. Well, not everybody. There was one person who found it unbearable, and he would fight tooth and nail to claw his way to the top, to the place he should be. George Hallis was on a mission to be the league's next champion, and he would succeed or die trying. 